0: greg say hello hello and we
1: have steve hartland joining us steve say hello howdy friends how are you healing up steve really doing great i'm so tickled i've had my uh, arm in this brace since february 20 it's been locked at 30 degrees until this week they gave me range of motion so life is good there you go
2: um
0: special guest today dr john frame joining us dr frame how are you today
3: good to be with you and with your listeners
0: Well, thank you very much for joining us. Dr. Frame, we want to just give you a few moments here um, to just go ahead and tell us about yourself. What do you do down there in Florida and, uh, you know, friends, family, things like that that are important to you down there?
3: Well, I've been uh, teaching theology for about uh, 46 years or so uh, in Philadelphia and California and now in Florida since... uh, 2000, I teach at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, and I teach uh, systematic theology, uh, apologetics, uh, history of philosophy, um, ethics, a uh, number of things. Uh, my wife and I have been married uh, for 31 years. Uh, we have five kids all together, three of them uh are grown up and have their own families and kids and they're on the West Coast where we used to be. And uh, our two kids from our marriage uh, are uh, Johnny and Justin and uh, Justin lives with us uh, and with uh, his wife, Johnny is in the area here and uh, we're very proud of both of them.
0: Wow. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Frame, for joining us. We know you're a very busy man. So we want to go ahead and dive right into the podcast here. Um, First topic that we want to talk to you about is uh, philosophy. And um, I I mainly just have uh, one thing that I, I want to ask you in regard to that. I remember when I was in college taking philosophy classes and having arguments and one of the main um, things that, that bothered me was from a philosophical standpoint, um, it seemed that both the professors and the students took this stand that with philosophy, it was an anything goes. It was this hodgepodge of ideas and thoughts and that you couldn't hedge anything on truth. Um, and I, you know, did my best to, uh, to argue that because how do you, how do you get anywhere when you can't hedge anything on truth? Um, and so I just wanted your thoughts and opinions. How do you, you said you teach philosophy down there. How do you teach philosophy, um, in your setting? Do you, do you use a, uh, truth as the starting point or is it just kind of this hodgepodge of thoughts and ideas about life?
3: Well, uh. RTS, uh, Reformed Seminary, is a Christian theological seminary per- preparing uh, people for ministries in the Church, and uh, so we have a very strong commitment to Christ and to the Bible, and uh, our teaching in every area is uh, uh, attached very closely attached uh, to the Bible as our foundation. Uh, that is our presupposition to use a buzzword, Uh, and uh, I don't think that anybody can think without a presupposition. I think there are some people who claim that they're just uh, seeking the truth wherever it comes from, but uh, uh, I don't think they would know the truth if they see it, unless they (laughs) have some initial guidance, unless they have some uh, idea of what they're looking for, unless at least they have some definition of truth as opposed to falsehood, and uh, uh, so uh, I, I think, you know, I'm in favor of people asking any questions that occur to them uh, in a class discussion or anywhere else. It's uh, a good mental exercise, and it can lead somewhere, but uh, I think people are just deceiving themselves if they think that they can uh, do that without uh, any presuppositions without any, uh, knowledge of, uh, uh, anything at all. Mm-hmm.
0: So the, the, the framework obviously is, is started from the Bible and then how, what does your, what would your philosophy classes entail? Um, obviously the study of the classics and things like that, but how do you lead that in, in a biblical way in discussion?
3: Well, I teach a course on the history of philosophy and, uh, and Christian Thought, it's called, and uh, my lectures for that have been uh, expanded into book form, and they're, they're going to appear in November, if anybody's mm-hmm. uh, interested in that. But uh, the uh, I, I see the history of philosophy as a story. you know everybody's talking about stories these days, and uh, I, I think it begins, uh, I think God created Adam and Eve with a philosophy already in their heads. They uh, believed that the world came from God, that God was the supreme authority, the supreme uh, Lord, that uh, he was the one who was uh, intended to govern the thinking of human beings. But with the fall into sin, uh, uh, Adam and Eve uh, rebelled against God's lordship uh, in the area of thinking, as well as in uh, the area of ethics and the area of of religion and everything else and uh, so this uh, uh back and forth between the uh, uh f- between the fall and creation uh, keeps going throughout uh, all of human history. You have a radical secularization of thought uh in Greek philosophy. And uh, then you have uh, Christians coming and uh, uh, pre- presenting Christ as uh, the savior of the mind, uh, but uh, also compromising somewhat with Greek philosophy. And that, uh, so uh, uh, Christian philosophy dominates the intellectual world in the West uh, during the medieval period. This is a great opportunity for Christians to take the intellectual initiative, but uh, uh, they uh, uh, did less than that. They they uh, uh, compromised even when uh, uh, there was no justification or no temptation to compromise. Mm-hmm. And then we get into the modern period, uh, uh, where there's a, even more radical secularization with uh, uh, Descartes, Spinoza, Leibniz, Locke, Berkeley. Hume and Immanuel Kant, and uh, uh, so on, that continues into the modern period. But I try to show that uh, uh, all of it is quite futile, uh, unless you uh, uh, presuppose the truth of God and the truth of of God's Word. So uh, what I do, I I have students read chapters of my forthcoming book, and then uh, uh, I ask questions, About that, the the students uh, think about study questions in advance and the terms that they need to define. And then our class sessions consist of uh, back and forth questions and answers, uh, discussions of anything that the students uh, feel needs to be uh, uh, discussed at greater length.
2: Um,
4: uh, if uh, if I may, Doctor Frame, one of the things you had just mentioned was uh, at one point it seemed that Christian thinking uh, in the philosophical sphere held the upper hand, and I was curious to get your thoughts. You said they compromised when there was no temptation. Can you can you unpack that a little bit? What um, I mean, where did that happen? Uh, what thinkers sort of gave away the uh, you know the the whole ball of wax? I'm just curious to get your thoughts.
3: Well, first group of Christian philosophers was the group of church fathers called the apologists in the uh 2nd century uh Justin Martyr is the most famous name among those and uh, uh Justin did everything he could to uh, well he was a, he was a genuine Christian preacher he brought the gospel uh to many people but uh, he also uh, wanted to gain academic respectability, and so he often spoke of God in impersonal terms, and uh, uh, he uh, often reasoned about uh, uh, God uh, apart from the Scriptures. He represented the Trinity in sort of a subordinationist manner, and so on. And I, I can't criticize him for that. He's way back at the beginning of. Uh, the history of uh, theology, and so I don't expect them to get everything right, but uh, unfortunately, that kind of uh, thinking uh, prevailed among other Church Fathers, and then when you get into uh, people in the uh, early medieval period, now Augustine, I think, was a bright, shining light (laughs) in this uh, uh, universe, but uh, uh, then you get people like uh, uh pseudo Dionysius mm-hmm. and uh John Scotus Origina who turned the Christian faith into kind of a Neoplatonism where you have uh, uh a, a abstract oneness at the top of the scale of being and all of us are emanations from that oneness not clearly distinct from God. So the creator creature distinction becomes very uh unclear there. And uh, Thomas Aquinas uh, brought Aristotle into the picture and uh, made a distinction between natural reason and the reasoning of faith. And natural reason uh, supposedly uh, can be done apart from faith, apart from revelation, uh, whereas I I believe that uh, God's Word uh, Uh, actually bears upon everything and should be governing all our thinking. So that uh, leads the way into the modern period and uh, without a clear philosophical statement of uh, what the Bible says about uh, philosophical issues.
4: Interesting, because I uh, wanted to ask you this uh, in this realm, when Nathan was going to pick your brain on this a bit, I heard R.C. Sproul, I I believe it was him years ago, Dr. Frame, uh, it, it was guesswork, and I know this is dangerous, but I'm curious to get your thoughts. I know uh, Aquinas dates or predates uh, the Reformation by several hundred years, but if I remember rightly, Sproul said, had Aquinas lived during the Reformation, he would have been one of us. And I'm curious if you, if <laughs> one, feel that's a fair <laughs> statement, uh, if you agree, disagree, or just aren't sure. I'd, I'd love to get your thought on that.
3: Well, I'm not so sure. It's a hypothetical question. You know, if, <laughs> yeah. if Aquinas had lived during the Reformation, then uh, he wouldn't have been Aquinas. Yeah. <laughs> he would have been Aquinas with several hundred years of uh, additional learning and uh, uh, so on. It uh, depends on how, how friendly he would have been to the Reformers at that time. Yes. He was deeply committed to the institutional Church and to the sacraments and to the idea of... Uh, Grace coming uh, from God uh, through the the sacraments. Now, of course, Aquinas believed that uh, salvation was all of grace, uh, as as most medieval theologians did. But mm-hmm. the question was, how does that grace uh, get to the believer? How how is does it uh, how does it come from God to us? And of course, the reformers said faith alone. And uh, uh, Aquinas, I, I can't recall. Any place where he clearly said that, unless yes. maybe he was quoting Paul at the, one point or something, so I I just don't know. I mean, Aquinas was a uh, uh, was very dedicated to the existing uh, Roman Catholic uh, way of doing things, and uh, and he was very uh, uh, and he believed in uh, the uh, use of natural reason without. Uh, uh, referring necessarily to Revelation, so I, I am not—I uh, am not as uh, friendly to Thomas Aquinas as Sprole is. Although there are a lot of good things about Aquinas, he has a very strong doctrine of predestination, for example.
4: Okay, okay, that may be what it was. <laughs> <laughs> I was curious why uh, why he had said that. So, so thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Dr. Frame. I'm going to turn you over now to uh, Steve Hartland here. Um, I know he's got a lot of questions um, about theology for you. So, Steve, uh, go ahead and and
1: roll away. Thank you, Nathan. Hello again, Dr. Frame.
3: Hi, Steve. Good to
1: talk to you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Just to let you know, uh, I'm a pastor of a church not far from the church that, uh, hosts these, these two guys who host the program. So we're, we're friends. And once in a while they actually, uh, they brave it and invite me to be on here with them. (laughs) So, uh, my, my first question for you falls in the area of soteriology or for some of our listeners, the doctrine of salvation. And, uh, the question goes like this. I I have a good friend now, and I really have a, a number of friends who would fall into this category. Um, who incidentally, the good friend I'm referring to won't listen to this podcast because he just doesn't do that. So unfortunately, (laughs) he won't hear your answers. But uh, now that he's become reformed in his doctrine of salvation, uh, he has begun insisting that Arminians, he used to be one of those, that Arminians have a different God and preach a different gospel. Hmm. And he questions whether they can even possibly really be Christians, so I've reminded him, for example, uh, of a number of things. For example, one is that uh, that he and I and ma- many of the people we know became Christians when we heard an Arminian preaching the gospel, <laughs> and, and we were Christians as Arminians for a while, so I, I think it might be the same God and the same gospel, but he's struggling with that, and others who listen to this podcast are struggling with that as newly reformed people. Um, I think, I, I know from things I've read in your books that, that you agree with me, Armenians can have the same God and preach the same gospel, but how can that be? Can you address that, please?
3: Well, it's always been a kind of uh, difficult question as to uh, where you draw the line between people who are worshipping the true God in a wrong way and people who are worshipping a different God. Uh, Now, in a way, I mean, if I break the Second Commandment, uh, worship God by images, uh, I'm worshiping a different God. I mean, you could argue that. But uh, uh, I, I don't think that every sin, you see, every sin could be treated that way. You could say that anybody who who thinks that he's worshipping the God of the Bible, but the, he violates the, the word of the God of the Bible, uh, you could say, I suppose, that he's rejected the true God, and he's uh, worshipping himself, or he's uh, uh, adopted a completely different word, and therefore completely different gods, so I suppose you could take any sin or any false doctrine and say that that amounts to worshipping a false god. Uh, On the other hand, I mean, I I don't think that the Bible ever treats it that way. I think the Bible says that it's possible to worship the true God. It's possible to be a a follower of uh, Jesus. It's possible to be a follower of Yahweh and still get some things wrong. <laughs> so uh, that leaves us with a line to draw, and uh, where is that line? I, I certainly want to say that, uh, uh, you know, the god of, of uh, Muhammad is a different god from the god of the Bible, although you have some people arguing uh, <laughs> on that score, too. You know, <laughs> Miroslav Wolf says that because uh, both Muslims and Christians worship the god of Abraham, uh, therefore they're worshipping the same god, and so there's some overlap in their ethics and uh, so on and so forth. Uh, to some extent, I guess it's a matter of uh, of your, your uh, inclinations, it's a matter of what you feel, and so on. I think it's sort of a waste of time, to get into that kind of argument, because uh, you have to draw fine lines and you have to set up some kind of criteria. Uh, when you commit sin, when you go against the Bible, how far do you have to go before your uh, relationship to God becomes false? and you, you You're actually serving a different God. For myself, I could never say... That Armenians are worshiping a false god, at least generally speaking. Yes. I, I think that when they say that uh, salvation is—I uh, mean Charles Wesley's experience—there are different kinds of Armenians, of course. Yes, but the, a Wesleyan Arminian who uh, who understands that uh, uh, human beings are are uh, are horrible and sin before the true God, and they uh, uh, have no hope except for what Jesus did, and uh, and they need to uh, trust in in Christ, salvation is by faith alone, and so on. I, I, I join hands with that kind of Arminian and uh, uh, I, I certainly can't say that they are uh, worshiping a false god.
1: Yes, thank you. That's really helpful. And let, let me ask kind of a follow-up question. Uh, here's part of the answer I've given to such friends, and I wonder if you would comment on it. Do you think I'm on to something good? Is this a right track or not? I, I've suggested to such friends that uh, that our Arminian friends, and I'm referring to the better ones, the ones who have a high view of Scripture and so on, not the lunatic fringe, other end of it. Uh, so the, the better Armenians. Um, maybe they're they're just not living consistently with all the implications of some of their theology, and we all do that to a certain extent. We're all inconsistent at one point or another with something that we hold somewhere else. So, do you think that's a possibility, a possible explanation for uh, why they really are preaching the gospel and worshiping the same God? They're just inconsistent with some of their 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 theology along the
3: well, way. Well, yeah, that's yes, that's the way I think of it. And there's an old saying I think Warfield and others have said this that the, Everybody is a Calvinist when he falls on his knees yes. and prays for God to save somebody else. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's uh, you're not uh, just hoping uh, or guessing that somebody's going to receive Christ through its free will. You're you're praying that God will move the heart of the person. And uh, you know there are an awful lot of uh, Wesleyans and Methodists who believe that God does move hearts, and however inconsistent that is with their general theology, I I praise that (laughs) inconsistently, (laughs) and uh, I'm I'm very glad to see it.
1: That's really helpful. Thank you so much for that. I'm going to move on to a second question that also falls in the area of soteriology, and uh, that is, uh, it's again referring to people I've known who become Reformed in their theology after they've been Christians for a while, and I think uh, they arrive at various unsound conclusions sometime and the one I want to refer to now is one I hear a lot I often hear reformed people say there's nothing you can do to be saved there's nothing you can do to be saved my response is I I think that's true and it's false I think for example of the, of the Philippian jailer who said what must I do to be saved and Paul didn't jump on him and say see there's your problem you think you can do something to be no Paul said here's what you do you believe on the Lord Jesus and be baptized and you, you you'll be saved there's something you do can you clarify for us please who's right and who's wrong in this there's hmm. nothing you do to be saved question
3: Well uh, yes I mean when uh, when uh, the jailer says what must I do to be saved uh, uh, you know, Paul doesn't just say, well, wait around and see if the Holy Spirit does something in your heart. He yes. says, uh, uh, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved in your house. So uh, he uh, does tell the person that uh, uh, he needs to do something. And I think we can understand how that all fits together. Uh, he needs to believe, but, but believing is a gift of God. Yes, And the uh, so this doesn't—the uh, command to believe and the fact that he must believe doesn't take anything away from the sovereignty of God. Uh, God is the one who enables belief, and uh, uh, and without him uh, we, we can do nothing. But still, uh, people need to be uh, commanded to do the right things. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, all, that's always the case, I mean, every bit of God's law— uh, don't commit adultery, don't murder, and so on, to keep the law of God. Uh, we can't do that on our own. We need the grace of God uh, in us to enable us to do the right things. But uh, that doesn't invalidate the law. The law is still God's will. It's still, uh, the, w- the law is still what God uh, desires, what God uh, prefers, and uh, certainly belief in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, is right up there as uh, the, the <laughs> number one thing that, uh, that God loves for us to do. So uh, it's, it's good to uh, spread that word, that that's what God wants us to do.
1: Yes, very good. A little follow-up on that, if I may. Um, I, I've also heard a lot of Reformed people say, instead of saying, here's what you should do, you should believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, they say, pray that God would do a work in your heart. Which I think is also, you're also you're telling them something else to do. <laughs> uh, yeah, if you're trying to get away from them doing things, you didn't succeed. Yeah, well. um, but the gospel is not pray that God would do a work in your heart, is it? The gospel says, believe, repent and believe.
3: Yeah, well... Prayer is something that uh, we do, and it's also something that God uh, uh, enables us to do. So at every point, you have both divine sovereignty and human responsibility operating together. You you never have a conflict between those two, and uh, Scripture never tells people uh, just be passive— and and wait for God to do something. Scripture always tells us to get up and do something, either to believe or to 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 go. Uh be strong and be of good courage and and uh, go out and uh, fight the wars of, of the Lord. Put on the whole armor of God. There's a warfare here. There's a race to be run, and uh, you don't win races just by sitting on the bench and uh, <laughs> waiting for somebody to pick you up and take you to the finish line.
1: Yes. Yeah. Thank you. That really helps. I hope a lot of my friends are listening to this podcast. (laughs) uh, Let me switch gears a little bit. Do I have some more time? Oh yeah, all right. So uh, this goes more to fraternal relationships among Reformed brothers and sisters, and I think uh, I think you've gotten in trouble with some of our Reformed friends a few times. I wonder if you'd care to yeah. Wonder if you'd care to address uh, what were some of the issues and how did it all come out? Would you want to speak to that?
3: Well, I wrote a book uh, back in the early 90s called Evangelical Reunion, where... Uh, I love that I book. A, yeah.
1: I love uh, that I book. I developed
3: yeah. a biblical critique of denominationalism, basically saying that uh, uh, you won't find denomination in the Bible anywhere, and the uh, uh, denominations are no part of New Testament church government. So... I uh, that that emerged out of a lot of uh, discussions and and so on. Actually, what, what happened was that the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, which I belonged to for 19 years, uh, was talking about uh, merging with the uh, Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA, and they uh, went back and forth on that through the 80s. And there was a lot of discussion in that. Uh, in that situation that was just uh, uh, really silly in in my Hmm. judgment. I mean, somebody, uh, the the PCA happened to own a a college called Covenant College Mm -hmm. and and the other, uh, and the OPC people were saying, well, we can't merge with the PCA because we don't believe it's legitimate for a denomination to own a college and so on and so forth. and, And why not? Well, because Church is sacred and the college is secular, and and uh, you know number one, I, I thought that was a spurious <laughs> biblical argument, mm-hmm. and number two, I, I thought that 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 even if that were a legitimate complaint, that's the kind of issue that should be wrestled together within the church. That we should try to come to a consensus within the church rather than uh, having separate denominations and uh, refusing to join uh, because we have that difference of opinion. And I think the Hmm. New Testament puts a large emphasis on the unity of the Church. I think when Jesus prayed that the Church would be one in John 17. Uh, he meant uh, in every way, spiritually, organizationally, and uh, and so on. And it's very sad when uh, the Church uh, breaks up. Uh, well, the original Church is now broken up into 40,000 denominations, yeah. which mm-hmm. certainly is not a way of uh, respecting the, the prayer of Jesus in John 17. So, That's that's basically my position, and a lot of my friends, especially in the OPC, didn't didn't like that at all. And uh, so um, it it wasn't just for that reason. There were a whole lot of events that that intervened, but uh, I am now in the PCA (laughs) (laughs) Uh, 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 following my church, which moved from OPC to PCA. So that's kind of the background of all that.
1: Dr. Frame, I I believe you've also taken some heat along the way on uh, contemporary Christian worship music and the regulative principle. Has that died down, or is that issue still very much alive? And tell us a little bit about the heat you took there, would you please?
3: Well, I suppose it's alive in some corners of the church, although uh, uh, I'm rather pleased that the way the history has developed, I I argue that the Uh, It's not unbiblical to use contemporary music in church, and uh, I I argued that uh, the—well, what the regulative principle means is that everything we do in worship must have a biblical warrant. There must be a biblical reason for what we're doing. uh, And—but, you know, there's so many things that we do in church. I mean, we sit in— pews, and the Bible doesn't say anything about pews, and we (laughs) sing three hymns, and the Bible doesn't tell us to sing three hymns, and and we have a sermon, and the Bible doesn't tell us to have a sermon every week, and so I could go on and on. So uh, Reformed people have made various distinctions. They've said that they distinguish between elements and circumstances, and they've said that the elements— require a biblical warrant, and the circumstances don't, and so on and so forth, but uh, I, I find it very difficult to distinguish between what's an element and what's a circumstance and what's an expression and what's a form, and we've uh, they, got it all developed out into a calculus. Yeah. <laughs> so hey, you, of, you wonder
1: if Paul would be confused it, by it,
3: don't yeah. you? Yeah, I, I just don't <laughs> find that in the Bible. I, right. I think we ought to be able to say Whenever we worship, we should be able to say uh, what we're doing is warranted by Scripture. If we sing hymns, well, the Bible tells us to sing hymns, and uh, it doesn't tell tell us just what hymns to sing. It doesn't tell us how many to sing, so we just have to make that judgment uh, uh, on our our own uh, with uh, an appreciation of the general teachings of the Bible about worship, uh, and the uh, same thing for the other aspects of worship that we have. Well, some some people have thought that uh, that that's non-traditional way of, of presenting the regular principle. Maybe it is, but but I always think that uh, if tradition is the only reason why we believe something or or if tradition is the only reason why we do things a certain way, I, I think it's time to rethink mm-hmm. <laughs> that, those practices. I mean, I, I'm a theological uh, teacher, and I think the job of a theological teacher is, among other things, to to rethink the Church's uh, traditional or historical positions and to uh, imagine what uh, how we could do some things differently.
0: Dr. Frame, uh, this is Nathan speaking again. I have a question for you. Um, going back to um, the idea of no denominations, how do you see that working practically, especially in light of the the issues between Calvinism and Arminianism?
3: Well, it wouldn't work practically today. brought <laughs> 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 everybody together in uh, one one group. Uh, uh, that might have been possible 2,000 years ago, but it's not uh, possible anymore. And I'm not arguing that. I'm not saying that we ought to all merge together. And I'm not saying that we ought to devote uh, an extraordinary amount of time to try to bring about church unions. Uh, we have better things to do with our time now. But uh, but I, I you know I think we'd be better off if we weren't always praising and celebrating the. Reasons why we're separate from some other denomination, and and uh, just go about and do the business of the Great Commission. Yeah, uh, yeah amen to that. I, I I think we, you know, there are little things we can do to try to get get together with with people of a different uh have uh, a somewhat different doctrinal persuasion and so on. And when we can, I think we ought to be open to church. Unions. I think it was just tragic that the OPC and the PCA could not get together, despite all the things that they had in common. Yeah. And uh, so, some people uh, just don't want to have a union with a, another group unless it turns out to be exactly the same as yeah. uh, mm. their present experience, and that, that just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So. Uh, I think we should be open. Now, you know, of course, uh, a Reformed church is not going to merge with an Arminian uh, church. And and the bottom line here is that we should seek to be one. We should seek to unite with other churches that we can conscientiously uh, be one with, you know. And I. I could not be conscientiously one with an Armenian church because uh, I would uh, want to be free to present the full Reformed gospel and uh, uh, without uh, being called up for that by somebody else. So, uh, and I'm sure that my Armenian friends would uh, correspondingly mm, yes. like the same freedom. So, but uh, we're just not at the point. I, I think we ought to study together, but. Uh, we're just not at a point where we can uh, consider uh, church unions uh, along such wide uh, uh, differences, but uh, there are a lot of little church unions that uh, are mm-hmm. not difficult in that kind mm-hmm. of way.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. Thank you. One more question from me, Dr. Frame. I'm Steve. One more from me before we get some from our uh, other host, Greg Dutcher. Um Okay. A recent version of this podcast focused on the age of the Earth and creation days, and uh, it, it was apparent in that con in that uh, broad, broad podcast that um, some people view that issue more as a test of orthodoxy, and others are more willing to say, "Now this is a, a lesser matter of the law, and we can agree to disagree on it." Um, I, I was raised in in a context where. Uh, Boy, if you didn't believe in a young earth, you were really suspect, like you were out on some theological limb ready to fall off. Uh, And I've changed that very much now, and I don't even know if I'm young earth or old earth for sure, but I I don't even really care, to be honest. (laughs) Um, It's not a big issue for me. So would you speak to why that should or should not be a test of orthodoxy, why that should or should not be on our list of core doctrines that we insist people must agree on?
3: Yeah, well I tend to be young earth, uh, at least I hit the pad of my Doctrine of God book. I stay away from that issue largely because uh, I, I I'm so stupid so far as scientific discussions go, I, I almost always uh, make myself look foolish or, or behave in an actually foolish way uh, when I get into uh, arguments about science. And I, I don't think that science is going to uh, be the determining factor on the uh, age of the Earth. I, I, I think we have to... Uh, scripture is our final standard on that issue as well as every other issue. But uh, the... Uh, 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 But if you're going to—the way the discussion has developed over the years, uh, if you're going to uh, uh, carry on an intelligent discussion with anybody, you have to be able at least to talk about the scientific issues, and uh, uh, I'm not able to do that. But, uh, you know, know, as I just look at the biblical uh, record, as I look at Genesis— Genesis one does not appear to me to be poetry in any sense. Uh, Hebrew poetry is different. It's like the Psalms. Uh, uh, Genesis one uh, does seem to have some literary features to it, which are interesting. Uh, but uh, the uh, uh, but I, I I don't see anything there that would keep uh, an ordinary reader from. Uh, uh, Seeing the sequence as as a temporal sequence and seeing the sequence as uh, uh, 24 hour days. And uh, I know that causes all kinds of problems, but uh, that's basically where I am. But on the other hand, I've known some very godly people uh, of past ages as well as today. B.B. Warfield had a kind of held to a kind of theistic evolutionary. Uh, position, and uh, he certainly uh, did not uh, hold to a young earth. Uh, same thing for, for Meredith Klein, from whom I've learned a lot, uh, E.J. Young, with whom I've learned a lot, and those guys know their Hebrew better than I do. And uh, So uh, I, I just uh, don't think that we've gotten to the point where we have enough assurance. Uh, I mean, I, I believe I think, in a a, uh, young earth. But I I can't uh, say on the basis of Genesis 1 and 2 that that is absolutely Hmm. certain that nobody could ever come up with an argument from Scripture against that. I I think we can leave our options open to to a little extent, and therefore I'm not willing to uh, say that the young earth... Creationism is uh, an absolute test of orthodoxy, so that uh, uh, we have to uh, reject anybody who holds a different view.
1: Oh, that was really helpful. Thank you so much for that. Um, Steve, there's You're a welcome. few more minutes if you have another question you want to Oh, wanna... well, I could do that. Thank you. Um, let's switch to, let's, switch, let's really switch to Christians and culture. And uh, I, I've just purchased and begun reading through your and, and peeking around at different places in your Doctrine of the Christian Life book. Uh, Thank you for for Mm -hmm. publishing that. I really love it. I was excited when uh, it showed up on my doorstep recently. So um, I recently read your little section on uh, should Christians go or not go to films. And of course, we're not talking about X-rated films. That's pretty easy to answer that one. But R-rated films and what might appear in those in terms of violence, language, maybe a sex scene, a non-Christian philosophy of life. Uh, when might Christians not go, and when might Christians feel free to go? How should we approach that topic? Can you help us, please?
3: Well, I think that Christians differ uh, in their maturity and their ability to appreciate uh, art and acting and so on and so forth. And uh, so I I think uh, it depends uh, on a number of personal issues. Uh, Is the person... uh, mature in Christ, is he well grounded in the scriptures, uh the more well grounded he is. I think uh, uh he he should be more free to uh uh understand culture to visit things that uh, perhaps other Christians should uh, should stay away from uh and uh, I, I think that uh, the uh, you know, I mean, there, there there are a lot of things in R-rated films that uh, uh, should uh, disgust uh, a Christian, even a mature Christian, certainly. But uh, remember, the, the Bible itself, and, and this consideration is becoming more important to me, in the Bible itself there's a real frankness about uh, sin, about the things that go on, uh, among sinful people. You read the book of Judges, you re- read about David's transgressions, you read about uh, Paul's uh, condemnation of uh, uh, of the Gentile world in Romans 1, and uh, uh, so on and so forth. The Bible is very open, very frank about that. It uses—it uh, uh, it describes practices that— uh, we would certainly not describe in our pulpits. Uh, it describes uh, mm-hmm. uh, sexual uh, uh, matters very uh, honestly and openly. And uh, so uh, what do you do about that? Well, I probably wouldn't uh, read the whole book of Judges to a five-year-old kid. I mean, I, I some, <laughs> some portions, you know, some battles and so on would be fun, but you don't uh, uh, go into a full course on on sex and violence in the the (laughs) Book of Judges with a child. Uh, But uh, eventually, you know, this is God's Word, and uh, as you grow up, you're going to want to uh, understand uh, uh, everything in the Book of Judges and why those things are in there, and uh, not forgetting what God's attitude is toward... uh, Sin and uh, uh, recognizing uh, how those things can be edifying, you know, know, Paul puts a lot of emphasis when he's talking about the language we use. uh, You know, let no corrupt thing come out of your mouth, but such as is good for edification, for building other people up, and sometimes people to be built up they need to hear about specific sins and they need to be warned against specific things that are going on in culture and uh, sometimes uh, you get uh, that kind of benefit from going to our movies mm-hmm.
1: very helpful
0: good yep so thank you so much dr frame we're going to pass you over now to uh, greg dutcher who has some questions for you on apologetics greg
4: Yes, uh, these uh, men were, uh, I think, looking at me, uh, urging me, go to me on earlier, Dr. Frame, to debate you on young earth, old earth. Uh, <laughs> I honestly think they just they just wanted to see me get sliced and diced. <laughs> Greg Dutcher versus John Frame. Who do you think, guys, would uh, hmm. win that argument? That's like
1: <laughs> Muhammad Ali and Pee Wee Herman. Right? <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, Sorry, um, brother. Yeah, Sorry. No, no, not at all. Not at all. To, I just, uh, <laughs> I'm glad
3: to discuss Greg Dutcher, because with Greg Dutcher, because I've enjoyed your books and your your correspondence in the past.
4: Oh, th- thank you, Doctor Frame. That was uh, an honor. You you actually, I think, um, helped that first little book I did on idolatry. I, I was telling these guys recently that uh, that caught the eye of a wonderful lady. I'll, I don't know if I should say her whole name, but Annette, who was an acquisitions editor at uh, Discovery House which is not known as a reformed publishing house. But I think uh, she could discern sort of a reformed flavor to the book and was urging me, uh, do you know anybody of uh, note that might be able to give this a little nudge? And I said, "Uh, no. I know nobody of note. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I shouldn't say, my wife is of great note, but that's to me personally. And so I reached out to you way back when, Dr. Verma, I think it was in 2008. And Mm -hmm. I know you're an incredibly busy man and must get a number of unsolicited Uh, you know, manuscripts and letters, and I just Mm -hmm. wanted to say that uh, to you again. It it was so meaningful that you read that and gave that a blurb, and I honestly think that's what pushed it over, uh, uh, you know, the edge a little bit and allowed, uh, you know, people like my mother and great grandmother (laughs) to buy that book. (laughs) So, uh, thank thank you, Greg. No, no, thank you, uh, very much, Dr. Frame. I I was curious, I'm going to ask you to do something. That I imagine is difficult because in a recent podcast, we had a gentleman on who was going to give a summary of, you know, for, for folks listening in that have never even heard of this, what the presuppositional school of apologetics is. We ran out of time in that podcast. I wish we had done it to save a little time to refer back. And I feel like asking you to do this is like asking a baseball aficionado to uh, you know, summarize what is the romantic spirit of baseball in the United States. It's it's hard to do, but to to the best that you can, um, can you give a summary you think might be helpful to a listener that's never even heard of this particular debate? Uh, a certain school of defending the faith, as opposed to what we think of the traditional evidential apologetics. Uh, can, can you give a few minutes on that?
3: Yeah. Well, uh, the more I Talk about these things. the The, the more I'm convinced that uh, presuppositionalism is not just a method that you set up against four or five other methods, like the Five Views book that we've done, where mm-hmm. where you have presuppositionalism and then evidentialism and then classic and the uh, and like uh, uh, ca- uh, ca- uh, ca- uh, comprehensive case and so on and so forth. I think presuppositionalism is more like a, a Christian epistemology, a Christian view of knowledge that uh, underlies all of the thinking that we do, uh, whether apologetics or or anything else. Uh, presuppositionalism just says two things. It says, first of all, uh, God is the Lord of the mind. Uh So that even Adam, before the fall, uh, had the responsibility of thinking God's thoughts after him. God was his supreme authority. And so anything that we think about uh, ought to be consistent with what God believes, what God has revealed to us in his Word. Now, the second thing is that uh, uh, man has fallen... Okay, so the first point is about creation, the second point is about the fall. Uh, man has fallen, and so we tend to rebel against God's thoughts. We tend to rebel against his will, his commandments, but uh, we we also rebel against his worldview. We, we don't like the idea that uh, uh, God is the creator and we are creatures and we must bow down to him. Uh, we'd rather uh, believe something else, uh, we'd rather believe that we're part of God, or we'd rather believe that the, there is no God, or we'd rather believe that we ourselves are God, or something like that. And that uh, that kind of thinking is sin. Now, we, we generally don't uh, think of sin in connection with thinking. Usually, sin has to do with worship or it has to do with ethics, but the Bible presents uh, uh, sin as something that covers all of uh, the lives of fallen human beings, and uh, uh, sin is found in the world of thought as well as uh, these other areas. So uh, uh, presuppositional apologetics is just part of this. When, When I bring my thoughts uh to bear uh in a conversation with a non believer, uh can I set aside God's lordship in thought? Can I set aside my own uh, uh tendency to sin and to distort God's word? No, I can't set those apart. Mm-hmm. I can't set those aside. I have to recognize them. So uh, when I bring the gospel to a non-believer, uh, uh, I need to, uh, make my thoughts conform, uh, to God's thoughts. And, uh, another way of saying that is to say that God's thoughts are, are my presupposition. God's, uh, word is my presupposition. And I, I don't think that's difficult. I mean, <laughs> I don't think it's difficult to make that case from the Bible. I, I, got into an encounter with R.C. Sproul some years ago, and he identified himself. Uh, He said, well, uh, you know, I still want to use evidence. Well, I I believe in using evidence, too, but uh, we use evidence uh, in a way that pleases God. Uh, And uh, he he says, well, I I agree with you that we need to uh, 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 believe the Bible when we do apologetics, but he didn't like to call himself a presuppositionalist. He preferred to call himself a proto-suppositionalist. And so we got into a discussion of what on earth that meant. Yes, what's that? A <laughs> I wrinkled up my face. Different yeah. from a presuppositionalist. So uh, I, I just think it's a kind of obvious point, and uh, I don't think it should be controversial. Uh, I think Van Til. Uh, sort of developed this, Uh, Van Til made a a mistake by trying to make it a big uh, controversial thing. I mean, this is something that every Christian believes, and and just as we said a little while ago, we said that the Arminians are uh, Calvinists when they pray for somebody else's salvation. Uh, I think that evidentialists are presuppositionalists when they try to give a biblical rationale Mm -hmm. Uh, for their evidentialism uh yes. so uh that, that that's my my $2 uh, introduction to the to the uh, uh to presuppositionalism you can also get a little uh, uh, essay called a primer on presuppositionalism it's a short introduction in the, one of my selected shorter writings books i think it's the volume 2 but i'm not, not 100% sure
4: Yes, yes. So no, that's that's very, very helpful, uh, Dr. Frame, because I, I was curious what you think of, uh, if you've read it, Tim Keller's book, which is sort of, to me, becoming a standard uh, apologetics text in high schools, colleges, his reason for God. Uh, if you have any take on Keller's approach, the way he goes about um, engaging a lost world with objections and uh, answering those objections and the way he handles himself. Do you, do you have any thoughts on, on Tim Keller's work? I know he's a fellow PCA pastor, and I was just curious what you thought of him.
3: Yeah, well, I've always been a great fan of Tim. I've I just uh, rejoiced in the way God has blessed his ministry in mm-hmm. New York City. He's he's cracked some cultural barriers that none of the rest of us have ever been able to do, so I, I tread lightly with the any kind of criticism of Tim and and Tim's work, but uh, I I use his book uh, as one of my texts in in my apologetics course, because uh, it does a very good job in reading the mind of the uh, sophisticated cultural unbeliever, which Mm -hmm. I'm sure that he meets many of those in his ministry in New York, and uh, he's kind of Aware of the objections that they bring to the gospel, and uh, and he has very appropriate responses. Now, it's not a, a book on methodology. I mean, uh, and that's good. I mean, most of our apologetics literature today is the defense of one particular apologetic method. You know, Mm -hmm. one guy writes a book on evidentialism, and he wants to show that the presuppositionalists are wrong, and the the, the cumulative case people are wrong, and so on and so forth. So he emphasizes his evidentialism, and then somebody else does the same with the presuppositionalism, and somebody else does the same with some other method. And the, the irony about this is that the apologetics is supposed to be directed toward the unbelievers, (laughs) Uh, but uh, here we are, uh, most of the apologetics literature is involved in debates among ourselves as to what the right method is, and I think Tim is one of the few uh, apologists who has really brought uh, the gospel to bear, really brought a, a biblical... Uh, epistemology uh, to bear upon actual unbelievers. He understands them. He knows what uh, what kinds of arguments they respond to, and and so on. And uh, uh, so, I, I think he's done a very good job with that. But of course, uh, he hasn't spent a lot of time in the book going over his method. He hasn't. Said well now here I'm a presuppositionalist and here's the reason and and uh, here uh, where, here's where I you know, make use of evidence and so on and so forth. He he hasn't uh, dealt with all those subjects and I frankly I think those subjects have been dealt with enough. Right? Sure sure. Mm-hmm. It's time for us to get out in the streets. That's what, Greg Bonson was saying in the years. Before he uh, died his untimely yes. uh, death in 1995, I, I think we need to get out in the streets and debate people and and uh, help people to see the the truth of scripture and I think you can do that without a lot of uh, technical discussion of method and uh, you know yes. when we should introduce uh, uh, evidence and so on so i i, I I'm not uh, going to vouch for every single point that Tim Keller makes but yes. uh you know I as I read it I, I find myself generally agreed with it uh uh and uh, probably 80 90% uh, uh in agreement and uh, I think what he does is uh, certainly uh, consistent with a presuppositional uh, approach he, he said that and uh, I I will will take his word for it and uh, I think that's uh, Evident uh, in the book that he's he's written.
4: Excellent. excellent, Dr. Fram. thank you. i I've given that book out to people. I always say when I'm in a relationship with a person, to you know, I, I always tell people don't treat books like that like tracks because one, it's too expensive. Yeah. <laughs> gonna, it's gonna be it's gonna be propping up a wobbly coffee table before it's read. Right. But if I'm in a relationship yeah. with a uh, non-believer, I can think of two examples where I've gone the distance with that person talking to them, and I'll say, would you read this book or some of it so we can talk about it? And I found Keller's book to be very, very helpful, so I'm glad to hear you uh, say that because I was just uh, curious to get your thoughts. Another thought I had, uh, Dr. Frame, and this might be my last question for time's sake. Um, Acts 17, of course, Paul at the the Areopagus and, and that great Mars Hill sermon, which has been dissected by so many different preachers to prove so many different things. Uh, I often think that that text becomes a proof text for a particular (laughs) philosophy of church life or something rather than just sort of giving it straight out. I'm curious, um, I've heard a number of evidential apologists use that in defense of their method. And I'm just curious, um, for lack of a better term, what presuppositional things (laughs) do you see the Apostle Paul doing in Acts 17? Because I'm sure you've thought deeply about that passage and in your writing and uh, thoughts. And as he's engaging lost people with no real access to the old Testament, um, I'd be curious to see how would you, uh, defend Paul's approach there or not defend it, but describe it in presuppositional terms.
3: Yeah. Well, uh, first, uh, it arises out of, uh, Paul's walking through Athens and seeing all the idols there. And, uh, he uh, when he says to the Athenians, he he puts it kind of gently. He says, "I perceive that you are very uh, religious." Yes, yes. <laughs> and uh, and uh, uh, but uh, uh, he, he's clearly uh, antithetical to their worldview. I mm-hmm. mean, he doesn't tell them to go on and worship the idols. And with my blessing, he he says that uh, uh, this is all. Uh, wrong, and uh, he he says he found a, an altar with an inscription to the unknown god, and that gives him a, uh, a, a, a at least he commends them for admitting their ignorance. Yes, but uh, his judgment on them is that they are ignorant, and that uh, uh, he has something else to to uh, preach to them. And what he preaches to them, of course, is the antithesis of idolatry. He he preaches to them, the, uh, uh, the God that uh, made the uh, heavens and earth uh, does not live but in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. So he gives a, a lesson in, in the biblical worldview. Mm-hmm. Uh, God is uh, Lord of heaven and earth. Uh, God is not... Uh, he doesn't need anything from man. That's the deity of God, as we call it. And, uh, he's the one who gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Well, there isn't much left for the Greek gods to do, you know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yahweh gives everybody everything that they need, and why, why do they have any interest in any other spirits or any other beings? Uh, and he, uh, and he gave, gives to all men life and health and everything is made of one man. Every nation of mankind. So it's not as though the Greeks can have their gods and the Romans can have their gods and the Canaanites can have their gods. There's one God for the whole earth that has uh, uh, given the, uh, uh, all the nations uh, places to live on the earth and. Uh, allocated boundaries of their dwelling place, and why has he done that? Not so that they can uh, set up idols and bow down to them, he's done all of that so that they should seek the true God, so mm-hmm. that they can feel their way to him and find him, yet he is actually not far from one of us. And then, of course, what the uh, evidentialists sometimes say is that Paul is quoting uh Greek poets mm-hmm. here, uh, who, whose worldview is not theistic, and uh, you know that's what Tim Keller does when he quotes the New York Times, right? When he right, the, uh, the New Yorker uh, magazine. He, he says that he quotes people who have an insight here and there, and sometimes he he interprets them very differently from what the original author would have said, and so. Uh, they uh, in him we live and move and have our being, well, that may have been uh, one author's testament to pantheism, but uh, uh, what Paul says is that the true God, uh, who is uh, not pantheistic, he's not identical with us, still he is drawn near to us, and, mm-hmm. and we can't avoid him, and he's, uh, we're his offspring, and that he's brought uh, brought them forth, and then he he says we should not think that the divine being is not gold, or is gold or silver or stone. So it's not that the unknown god is an addition to all the other Greek gods; uh, he's a replacement. Yes, uh, we we should not worship any god uh, who is silver or stone or an image uh, from the imagination of man. Uh, god uh, overlooked that. Uh, uh, uh to some extent, he hasn't brought the final judgment on earth, but now he calls everybody to repent. And he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, it's interesting, he, he doesn't use the name of Jesus, but uh, it's clear that uh, Jesus is the one he was, he's referring to. And uh, it's not, uh, uh, you, you know... Uh, the uh uh I, I don't know how much of Paul's address is recorded by Luke right. at this point uh but the name of Jesus is found earlier in verse 18 uh some of the opponents said that Paul seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he is preaching Jesus and the resurrection mm-hmm. Um, Jesus and Anastasia (laughs) maybe they thought that Anastasia was Jesus' consort or something (laughs) (laughs) of course they misunderstood Uh, but uh, uh, you know I I think what the Areopagus address is Paul uh, gradually replacing their idolatrous worldview with a worldview derived from biblical revelation and the Uh, in which uh, Jesus is the only Savior. And that's uh, certainly not uh, going on a common ground basis. It's it's not saying, well, your religion is okay. Uh, uh, He's he's saying that it's all wrong and you need to repent and change.
4: Excellent, Dr. Rame. Thank you. Makes me want to reread and re-preach Acts 17.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yes, thank you so much, Dr. Frame. Uh, once again, we do want to be uh, conscious of your time, and so thank you for joining us yes. um, for this segment, and we really appreciate it. Um, we're oh, you're go. very
3: welcome. Yeah, I trust you'll let, let me know uh, when it's posted and uh, where and so on.
0: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So we're going to go ahead and uh, sign off now, and uh, gentlemen, we just rocked the Caspa.
4: Rocked it. Thank you, Dr. Frame.
2: These go to 11.